You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. The skyrocketing cost of gas is a financial burden in more ways than one. We've seen a spike in the number of gas thefts in Metro Vancouver. And in one case, the culprits were caught on camera. Grace Key reports. Home security footage captures gas thieves in action. You see one man crouching between parked cars with what appears to be an oil pan. He returns an hour later with another man, and they quickly fill up their bucket before taking off. That's what Tapinder Tawana came home to after an Easter long weekend family trip. Well, it looks like so far it's just a puncture hole to the tank, and then they seem to have jammed it back up with some materials, so on the outside it doesn't look like much damage. It happened at about 4.30 in the morning on Easter Sunday in Surrey's Boulevard Heights neighbourhood. A damage assessment hasn't been made yet, but it's the inconvenience of it all that has Tapinder upset. It's our family vehicle, we take our kids in it, and so that's now grounded for a couple of days or for however long it takes to... Uh, to fix. He isn't the only recent victim. John Peters from Maple Ridge spent $130 to fill up his car and then noticed the gauge start to go down. I noticed that there's a half a tank of gas left in my, in my tank. So I'm thinking something's going on. So I pull over, sure enough, three-eighths, seven-inch hole in my gas tank. John thinks the thieves hit Sunday night and probably took off with only a couple of liters of gas. These thefts happening right when gas prices started to skyrocket, reaching record-breaking prices of more than $1.70 a liter. Because now we know the cost of having to get it repaired or go through ICBC for all of it and, and for what, you know, $50 to $100 of gas. There doesn't appear to be a noticeable rash of gas thefts in the region, but high fuel prices are expected to stick around. And please say if you are a victim, it's important to report it. Grace Key, Global News. The high prices at the pump and the pressures of climate change, Vancouver is considering some radical proposals that may not seem so outlandish now. One of them includes establishing zones where gas-powered vehicles would be banned. Our Catherine Urquhart has the details tonight. And Catherine, it's all part of what the city is calling six big moves to fight climate change. That's right, Chris. Zero emission zones could be a possibility sometime in the future here in Vancouver. But right now, it's just an idea as city staff try to come up with some creative ways to deal with climate change. Um, at Vancouver City Hall, councillors are poised to vote on a stunningly ambitious plan, one that would make Vancouver carbon neutral by 2050. The public realizes we have to do something. Uh, where it gets difficult is the specifics and, and the rate of change. A 53-page staff report recommends six key goals called big moves that 90% of Vancouverites live within walking distance of their daily needs by 2030. Two-thirds of trips involve walking, biking, or transit by 2030. That half of all vehicles be zero emissions by 2030. All new and replacement hot water systems be zero emissions by 2025. That emissions in new buildings and construction be reduced by 40% by 2030. And restoration work on forests and coastal ecosystems be a priority. I have concerns about how we actually bring it down to the local level um, and to that individual resident and say, why should I care? 
The Urban Development Institute is already suggesting this would increase the cost of housing. Also expected to get pushback, the idea of zero-emission neighborhoods, where gas-powered vehicles are banned. The environment the economy can work hand-in-hand. If Council approves this framework report, staff would be tasked to come up with a detailed plan, reporting back by the fall of 2020. City councillors have not voted on this report just yet. It's expected that may happen later tonight or possibly another day, all depending on the number of questions and the debate that happens over the next few hours. Chris? All right, Catherine, thanks for the update. Catherine Urquhart in Vancouver. Now, nine people are still being treated in hospital after last Friday's tragic deck collapse at a home in Langley. Family members say two of the victims are in critical condition in ICU and are still unresponsive. Three others were released this morning, one of them being transported to a hospital in Calgary. The second-story deck came crashing down just before a traditional pre-wedding ceremony involving the bride's family and friends. Nearly 40 people were hurt. The cause is still under investigation. A 32-year-old Seashelt man has been identified as Surrey's latest homicide victim, Con Michael Bourne was found yesterday afternoon on the street near 132nd Street and 114th Avenue with gunshot wounds. He later died in hospital. The integrated homicide investigation team says a vehicle fled the scene immediately after the shooting. Investigators say Bourne was known to police and they believe this was a targeted attack. Right now it's a little early to uh, definitively link this to gang activity. Um, we're looking into his past, um, so right now, uh, we don't know. Charges have been laid in a shooting in Langford. It happened Tuesday morning outside the Happy Valley Market. Two vehicles quickly fled the scene, and one of them, a Kia Optima, got tangled up in a crash. Police arrested a suspect there and seized a firearm from the vehicle. 27-year-old Justin Lemon is now facing a number of charges. The second car in that instance, a Cadillac DeVille, was later found abandoned in Colwood, but police are still looking for the driver. Investigators would like to confirm that person is okay, so if you have any information, contact West Shore RCMP. The trial of Andrew Barry entered its fifth day of proceedings today. The Oak Bay father is accused of killing his four- and six-year-old daughters on Christmas Day. Barry has pleaded not guilty to two charges of second-degree murder. Romina Dea was in court today as Crown called its second witness. Sergeant Michael Martin of the Oak Bay Police Department told the jury he was concerned because he couldn't reach Andrew Barry by phone or email. About four hours had passed. Chloe and Aubrey had not been returned to their mother as stated by a custody order, said Martin. The sergeant testified he contacted Barry's sister, who he said told him Barry was depressed, encountering financial difficulty. His electricity had been shut off, but he was a good father and would not harm his children. Martin asked for pictures of the girls to go out to taxis in BC Transit. He told the court while he had grave concerns, he didn't think anything criminal. Maybe Barry was just late, he said. Defense has a very different narrative. Possible police contamination, unretrievable text messages, key details not recorded in notes. Just a few examples of deliberate moves made by police defense suggested. Adding that from the beginning, Andrew Barry was treated as the killer 
never a victim. The trial is expected to last about three months. Romina Dea, Global News. Former Liberal Cabinet Ministers Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott were in Richmond today delivering the keynote speech at a forum on First Nations justice. Our Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us now from Victoria. The two weren't there, Keith, to speak about the scandal uh, mm -hmm. that got them booted from caucus, but they did address it. Well, I don't see how they can go anywhere and not address it these days, uh, Chris. That's going to take some time for that scandal to go away uh, and be below uh, the top of mind issue for, for a lot of people. So the conference, of course, was on Indigenous rights and reconciliation. And Jody Wilson-Raybould did address that, uh, but in the context of the testimony she gave to that House of Commons committee. And Jane Philpott's message was, look, a lot of people say I'm naive when it comes to politics. But as far as I'm concerned, that old way of politics is done. Here's the two of them. In my recent testimony before the Justice Committee on February the 27th of 2019 respecting the SNC-Lavalin controversy, I observed that, quote, the history of Crown Indigenous relations in this country includes a history of the rule of law not being respected. And I have seen the negative impacts for freedom, equality, and a just society this can have firsthand. In theory, there is a desire for diversity among people in politics. In reality, it seems that Ottawa is not entirely ready for people who approach leadership and responsibility from different worldviews. Now, it's interesting. These two would appear together at the same conference. They seem to be sending a message here, forming a bit of a power block between the two of them. Of course, they are uh, certainly being courted, I think, by the, uh, by the federal Green Party to become candidates. Obviously not going to be liberal candidates, but uh, they both show no signs of wanting to disappear from the political arena anytime soon, Chris. So uh, look for these two to hang around come the next election. It'll be interesting if they run as independents or for the Greens. Can't wait to find out what their uh, true intentions are. Thanks very much. For that, Keith, Keith Baldry and Victoria for us. The BC SPCA is investigating after two newborn kittens were found left for dead in a Vancouver dumpster. The animals were discovered on April 19th when a passerby heard meowing sounds coming from a dumpster on Pacific Street. The hours-old kittens who were stuffed inside a tied-up plastic bag were rushed to an emergency clinic suffering hypothermia and dehydration. Sadly, they did not survive. We're asking the public's help in identifying who threw these kittens away. Um, it's an offence under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act to abandon an animal, and it's absolutely despicable for anybody to throw any live animal away. It speaks volumes about society if we treat animals as disposable. And how about this warning for people living on Burke Mountain in Coquitlam? There's a cougar in the neighborhood. This security camera footage is being shared on social media, showing a large cougar casually walking up and down the sidewalk early Monday morning. This adds to the growing number of sightings recently. There have been no attacks like the one near Lake Cowichan last month, where a seven-year-old boy was mauled. There are approximately 2,500 calls to conservation officers about cougars every year in B.C. Three to four people are still dying from opioid overdoses every day. So B.C.'s top doctor is proposing a radical move to address it, decriminalize the use and possession of common street drugs. And she's getting some powerful support from police who know the current tactics aren't working. Sarah McDonald explains why the idea will be difficult to implement. 
It's a public health crisis claiming lives on a daily basis. Now the province's top doctor is making one major recommendation that could radically change the way we deal with drug use and addiction. I believe it's time for us to take this work one step further. The provincial health officer urging the decriminalization of drug possession for personal use in a report released Wednesday, recommending the removal of criminal penalties for possession of illegal narcotics. The current criminal justice-based approach framework in, in, in BC and in Canada creates barriers to accessing prevention and treatment services. It keeps people at home not talking about their drug use, using alone and dying. The nearly 50-page report doesn't make any specific recommendations when it comes to civil penalties, if any, for those found with drugs for personal use. And it stops short of calling on the provincial and federal governments to provide clean, hard drugs to users and addicts. So it's one step at a time, which sometimes is okay, but I just think the opportunity right now is to take two steps and to both deal with the supply side of the equation and the stigma. It does outline two options for bypassing federal legislation, utilizing the Police Act and the powers of the province. Possessing these substances is still illegal under federal law. No provincial action can change that. But top law enforcement officials support it. I believe strongly that supporting people who use illicit street drugs is best addressed through a comprehensive public health strategy. The report found stigma surrounding addiction only contributes to the mounting death toll of the opioid crisis. More than 3,700 British Columbians dying by overdose in the past three years. It starts us in a direction that will reduce stigma, will keep people safer. Preventable overdose is the leading cause of unnatural death in a province that could now set a new standard nationwide as the death toll only continues to climb. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Meantime, Ottawa is unveiling more funding in Vancouver today to deal with the deadly opioid crisis. Federal Health Minister Jeanette Pettipot-Taylor toured the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic at St. Paul's Hospital before announcing just over $15 million for seven projects, including education, treatment, harm reduction and research. And as I've indicated today, we really have to be compassionate in our approach when we deal with the situation. There's no one silver bullet solution to deal with the opioid crisis. I believe, I think we all know that. So we have to have all hands on deck and make sure that we do what we can to turn the tide on this national public health crisis. The federal government is also handing out money in Richmond today to address the impacts of climate change. Ottawa committing more than $13 million to upgrade the dike network that protects the city. With ocean levels rising, the money will raise the level of about four kilometers of dikes and upgrade five pumping stations. An update tonight on the debate over daylight saving time as Washington State gets closer to ditching the switch. The state's House of Representatives has voted 90 to 6 to pass a bill that would make daylight saving time permanent. The bill still requires congressional approval to officially implement it. Premier John Horgan has said that getting rid of the clock change here in B.C. hinges on what happens south of the border. California residents also voted to make daylight saving time permanent. That still has to be approved by the state legislature and Congress. So stay tuned. A well-known Vancouver architect and a B.C. developer say the time has come to build the world's tallest wood frame tower. And they want to build it in Kitsilano. Aaron MacArthur on how it'll work and why its proponents think it's the way of the future. The city of glass. 
But all those squeaky clean windows come with a dirty secret. Concrete and steel skyscrapers, an environmental disaster, creating as much as 40% of a city's greenhouse emissions. A Vancouver developer is proposing a huge new building on Vancouver's west side with a tiny environmental footprint. It has to work, it has to be financially feasible, and it has to be something that, you know, that people will actually want. The proposal, still in its infancy, architect Peter Busby from Perkins Will has designed a 35 to 40 story building made mostly of wood. We're way out there, there's already wood buildings, but, but we're trying to do a zero emissions, uh, healthy building, and a, uh, and a building that um, generates as much of, of its own energy. Mass timber buildings are not new. UBC's latest residence is a wood building with a concrete core. Architect Michael Green has become one of the world's leading proponents of wood construction. He says this has to be a major part of our climate future. The big game changer is for us to live in cities as we do, we need to work with materials that are big materials, gluing together these huge panels that we call mass timber panels to let us build these huge heights that we're now starting to talk about. There are still some challenges that need to be sorted out, like soundproofing, but BC has embraced this technology already changing the building code to allow for 12 stories. Anything beyond that will require, I think, uh, more detailed discussions about land use with the affected municipalities, as well as with the province to ensure that uh, the engineering is appropriate. Any approval of a project of this scope will take years, but for Bruce Langeris, the risk of not doing anything is too great to at least not ask what's possible. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A Richmond elementary school is the latest to get a facelift that will make it safer in an earthquake. Victoria will spend $12.8 million to seismically upgrade and partially replace Manoa Steves Elementary. Construction is expected to begin in the fall and wrap up by the summer of 2021. It's the fifth Richmond school to get seismic upgrades. This school is such an important part uh, for the community of Steveston. I've been talking to uh, Principal Fit about uh, what makes this uh, neighborhood tick. This is a wonderful part of the province, a wonderful part of Richmond, a wonderful school with an innovative Montessori program here that looks like you guys just have fun all day long, and that's great. Um, but we do uh, have a job to do as government to make sure that students uh, are safe and protected in the event of an earthquake. A TV reporter gets ready for a live report in New York and got a lot more than she bargained for when a manhole behind her exploded. It's one of several blasts that injured four people in downtown Manhattan. Several buildings were evacuated because of high carbon monoxide levels. At this point, it appears the explosions are connected to electrical infrastructure. None of the injuries is life-threatening. Professional mountain climbers have been brought in to help with the restoration of France's Notre Dame Cathedral. The climbers are fighting high winds to install tarps and other coverings over the roof that was destroyed by last week's fire. Adding to the urgency is rain in the forecast in the coming days. French President Emmanuel Macron promised that France would rebuild the cathedral in five years. And the government announced today it will press for legislation to accelerate the work by bypassing normal red tape. The controversial issue of skyrocketing pay for corporate CEOs has put a chill on what's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. An heiress to the Disney empire blasting the salary of the company's top executive. Abigail Disney, granddaughter of the company's co-founder, calls CEO Bob Iger's 2018 compensation insane. 
Abigail Disney is taking aim at the company that shares her name. I knew my grandfather and I worshipped the ground he walked on, and I know that was never the company he wanted to start. Her grandfather was Walt Disney's brother and a co-founder of the company. I had to speak out, she writes in today's Washington Post, about the naked indecency of chief executive Robert Iger's pay. Pointing out that Iger made $65 million in 2018, more than 1,400 times the median pay of a Disney worker. The 59-year-old social activist, who has no controlling stake in the company, says she met with Disney employees in California. Some told her they have to choose between paying rent and paying medical bills. If your CEO has never made more money and people at the bottom have to ration their insulin, something is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. The problem, she says, is hardly Disney's alone, citing statistics from a left-leaning think tank. Since 1978, CEO pay has grown by 937 percent, while the pay of an average worker grew just 11.2 percent. In the last decade, that inequality has fueled progressive movements from Occupy Wall Street... We're middle class and we're mad as hell. ...to calls for an increase in the federal minimum wage. Disney gave out a one-time $1,000 employee bonus last year and has committed to paying twice the federal minimum wage at its parks by 2021. The company did not respond to NBC News' request for comment. But the business made record profits in 2018. And now a member of the family is calling on Disney to share more of that money all the way down the chain. Stephanie Gosk, NBC News, New York. It's life imitating art in Florida with a scene that'll be familiar to anyone who's seen the Jaws movies. Tourists shot this video of a great white shark chowing down on a bag of chum hung as bait from the side of the boat. After it finished its snack, the shark just swam away. So they will not need a bigger boat, it turns out. In Health Matters tonight, the World Health Organization has issued its first ever guidelines for how much screen time children under five should have. And to no one's surprise, it goes from none to not very much. But as Linda Aylesworth reports, the WHO says it's not actually the screens that are the problem. For parents of young children, screen time can seem like a godsend. Screen time can help children if they're going through a difficult situation that's distressing. You can use screen time to distract them. TV, iPads, iPhones and the like can be helpful parenting tools in other ways as well. It's really good for FaceTime with family members that are far away. Say a dad is working out at the city. But numerous studies concur that there are definite downsides. Now the World Health Organization has released guidelines to help parents avoid the problems screen time can create. We know that screen time interferes with physical activity because children end up spending a lot of time not moving around. And we also know that screen time interferes with children's sleep. And so the World Health Organization recommends that children under the age of two have no screen time. And those between two and five have no more than one hour a day. If children are going to have screen time, that they have interaction with adults around that screen time so that they're getting the benefit of that one-to-one interaction. The goal, not only to encourage interaction, but daily physical exercise. 180 minutes for two to five-year-olds and 30 minutes for those not yet mobile. Tummy time is huge. 
it's a really great opportunity to put them on a blanket and have them move, move around and exercise. And then as much as parents can to encourage children to walk if they're going short distances. I know it slows everything down, but a lot of children that you see being strolled could possibly be walking. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. In other health news today, a new B.C. study suggests there's strong support for a policy that encourages vaccination, but not punishment if you don't. More than 80 percent of the 1,300 people surveyed are in favor of a policy to promote vaccination, but less than 40 percent support fines or penalties. There have been 27 cases of measles in B.C. since February, and while the province has no mandatory vaccination policy, as of September, parents will be required to report their child's immunization record. Children will not have to be vaccinated in order to attend school. A police dog in Oregon is in a much happier place now than he was just five days ago. The prickly situation he barely escaped from right after the weather with Christy coming up. But first, we've been talking about the possibility for years, but delivery by drone has finally taken a huge step forward. Google's Wing Aviation has just received the first FAA approval in the U.S. for a pilotless project, so to speak, in Virginia. In the race to dominate the skies, Google's Project Wing now poised to bring deliveries to your driveway. Their new drone service, the first ever to be approved by the FAA. This is huge because now we're seeing a pathway forward to make this a reality instead of something that's just talked about. Uh, in, you know, around the coffee shop. Google's drones carry packages beneath their belly, lowering them to people's yards with a tether while it hovers a safe distance above. The service promises to slash delivery times. Say, order a pizza, and it could go straight from your local shop and skip traffic altogether. Within just a few minutes, you should be able to step outside and collect your dinner. Other companies aren't far behind. Amazon is testing out its own drone system. UPS? just partnered with a North Carolina hospital to fly test samples across campus and in Africa. Zipline is already using drones to send villages medical supplies. But a 2017 study shows more than 50% of Americans still aren't sold on the idea of drones near homes. I want everyone to remember that this day is still an experimental day. Everyone should not think that they're about to get tacos or burritos delivered by their drone. Maybe not dinner yet, but Google's final test runs offer dessert for the daughter of researcher Mark Blanks. To me, it's exciting. To her, she just thinks that uh, she should get uh, popsicles and ice cream every day by drone. A sweet spin on home delivery with soaring possibilities. Morgan Chesky, NBC News, Chicago. All right, the Coos County Sheriff in Oregon has released video of one of its police dogs due to overwhelming interest in its welfare. The video shows Odin happily playing with his handler, apparently none the worse for wear, which is quite remarkable considering that on Saturday, Odin looked like this. He was chasing a suspect when he came upon a porcupine and he ended up impaled with more than 200 quills, mostly in his face, some perilously close to his eye. Two hours of surgery later, the quills are out. Odin is on the road to recovery and he will not lose his eyesight, thankfully. Good dog. <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a pregnant pause there. Gives us time to check in with Christy, our meteorologist, in another gorgeous afternoon, although a little windy, a little bit.
A little windy by the water and a little cool by the water, uh, but still nice and sunny. A great beach day, that's for sure. And uh, we're going to see more of them in the coming days. 12 degrees by the water, 16 uh, further inland, so a little bit warmer there. But uh, these are just slightly below seasonal. Uh, nice and warm, though, in the interior, slightly above seasonal there. Now, here's a look at uh, the fire danger rating. I wanted to highlight this. In the northeastern corner of the province, moderate level, and uh, that's going to continue. Continue. We don't have much rain in the forecast for the next several days, and it's now extending into southern BC, a few pockets there. So keep that in mind. 27 fires across the province, and the majority of them are human-caused. Uh, no fires of note, thankfully, but it just gives you an idea of how dry it is out there. And here's a look at what we're expecting tomorrow. We'll see some cloud cover as the system tracks just south of our region, but no rain expected for the south coast. We will see some moisture, though, push into the Okanagan. Valley and into the Kootenai regions uh, through the next 24 hours, but not starting until tomorrow evening. So this is at 8 p.m. tomorrow evening, and then it really starts to develop. So we could see some snow over higher terrain, showers over lower terrain, and that does mean the mountain passes. So we're highlighting a, a freezing level starting tomorrow night at about 1,500 meters. So those are just the highest mountains that could see that snowfall. So Coquihalla, Hope Princeton look good. However, if you're traveling the Okanagan Connector, a 60% chance of snow. Again, this this is tomorrow night through Friday morning, not in the next 24 hours. And Kootenai Pass has a chance of seeing that as well. Here's a look at your forecast. So mainly sunny across northern regions. And we'll see some cloud cover across the south. Again, that moisture pushing in tomorrow evening for the south coast. Mainly cloudy, but it will be bright out there. And we'll still see, I think, a number of showers, shadows across the region. So a pleasant day despite overcast skies. And then Friday, Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud with a slight chance of showers on Saturday. One last shot from Prince Rupert. Joel Brown said he was enjoying the sunset with his ch uh, children just last night. Oh, they're having fun too. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. Just before we bring Squire in, I know you know this story. This is fantastic. The Vancouver Asahi baseball team can now put their stamp on history quite literally. We were born in Canada. We spoke English. On the streets... We weren't welcome. It's an incredible story. And now Canada Post will unveil a new stamp celebrating the team, which was made up of Japanese Canadians that played from 1914 to 1941. The team had great success playing mostly at Oppenheimer Park, but was disbanded when players were interned during the war by the federal government. They were also the subject of the most recent Heritage Minute. The stamp is being unveiled in Burnaby this evening. We'll show you what it looks like tonight at 11. But what a great honor for that team. Uh, Squires here with sports, and uh, sometimes it's not always just about the highlights, is it? No, and uh, we will talk further mm -hmm. about Cato in a few moments. But we, yeah. should, uh, we should mention it just the for same sure. right now. Because uh, today the BC Lions did share the very sad news of the passing of their longtime equipment manager, Ken Kato Kasuya, who had been with the team for 40 years. He was a beloved figure, both inside the dressing room and in the community at large. He was one of those rare people that nobody had a bad word to say. Nobody. If you ask anybody about Kato, it's always smiles and good stories. Nothing bad. Uh, we will have a look back at his life and hear from some former Lions before the end of the show. And before I go any further, you might be wondering who gave him his nickname. 
Well, we have a number of stories from back in the day on Cato. Mm -hmm. He said it was former lion Nick Hebler who gave him his nickname Cato. Good one. Uh, if someone said the first round of the NHL playoffs is actually the new season of Stranger Things, I'd believe them. Think about all the weird and unexpected happenings that have gone down in round one. Sure, there is no scary shadow monsters, but a lot of the favorites got chased out of the playoffs in all kinds of ways. Last night, we talked about this before the break, Vegas loses in overtime to San Jose, but they were up 3-0. Four power play goals in four minutes and one second by San Jose on a five-minute power play. That should not have been a five-minute power play. It should have been a two-minute power play at the most. But how many times do you see four power play goals on a five-minute man advantage? Maybe two, but I've never seen four, at least not live. Uh, anyway, is there one more surprise before round two begins? Can Alex Ovechkin and the Capitals stay in this tournament? Let's go to Washington for game number seven between the Caps and the Hurricanes. All the home teams have won in this series. Barakovsky won nothing for Washington. Well, that's a good start for the Capitals. But first goals don't always mean anything either because it's just the way it's gone. Andre Barakovsky gives him the lead. Then Ovechkin with a move. Ovechkin with another move. And then the pass. And it's Tom Wilson with his third of the playoffs. And now it's 2-0 Washington after one. This is a shorthanded goal. And watch Braden Holpe, Stanley Cup winning goalie. What is he doing? He basically treats the puck like it's made out of plutonium, throws it right back to Sebastian Ajo, who scores and makes it 2-1. All right. Washington gets the two-goal lead back. Three-on-one here. Haglin to Evgeny Kuznetsov. So it looks like Washington's in good spots again, or in a good spot. But then Carolina starts scoring. And it's Toivo Teravainen before the end of the second period. And Jordan Stahl has scored, and they are 3-3 early in the third. Who knows? Maybe another favorite bites the dust here. The Vancouver Canucks have a few people to sign this offseason, like Brock Besser. He'll get a new contract. They're also have to get, they're going to have to make decisions on Alex Edler, who they would like to re-sign, Ben Hutton, Tyler Mott, I think they like to get his name in a contract, and Jacob Markstrom, who has one year after this summer under contract with the Canucks. But they did get Markstrom's backup done. Thatcher Demko, given a new two-year deal by the Canucks today, it'll pay him just over $1 million per season. Didn't become the regular backup until January after Vancouver traded Anders Nilsson to Ottawa. He won his first two games, finished the season 4-3-1, 9-13 save percentage, not bad. Uh, because he didn't play a lot this year, the ETA of when he becomes the Canucks' number one goalie has been pushed back a bit, but expect him to get a lot more work next year, and I don't think Markstrom will have to play 60 games next year. Well, we all know the Vancouver Whitecaps have won but one game so far this season. The system Vancouver plays is still taking some time to gel. It's kind of like jello in the fridge. Take some time to, you know, get together. What we have seen, though, lately is Vancouver's defensive play has improved, but their offense still lags a bit behind. We're in the top two teams in defensively in goals conceded in MLS, right? Um, so there's this part of our game that is very good, but we're also uh, last in uh, offensive. So that part, that needs to become better. And you have to be 
careful with it as a coach not to start. Okay, now we scored two goals a game, but we concede four. You know, it's fine. It's always finding a balance uh, to allow the team to grow. Blue Jays will get Vladimir Guerrero Jr. up from the minors on Friday. All right, tomorrow is the Orange Helmet Awards for the BC Lions. Um, big award ceremony. They have it every year, and I'm emceeing it, and it's going to be different without yeah. Cato. It's going to be sad. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1979, a young boy rode his bike to Empire Stadium, where the BC Lions used to play their games, and wanted a job as a ball boy. And they gave it to him. Mm-hmm. And he never left the BC Lions organization. Unfortunately, he has left us all. Here is the story of Cato. Pro sports is an industry where people come and go. And we remember them for, the, for usually the short time that they were here and how they impacted uh, people. Cato came and stayed. It, it's the only thing he's ever done with his life. Cato's business card said BC Lions equipment manager. But it should have said, heart of the BC Lions, because that's what he was. He provided the tools of the trade to all the players over four decades so they could play the game. But his greatest gift to them and anyone who worked for the BC Lions was his personality and his friendship. Cato just wasn't the equipment manager. Cato was a psychologist. I I don't know how many guys he had in that office that, you know, we're going through a bad time no matter what it was, whether it was you weren't playing enough or you were having problems at home or whatever it was. And Cato always just seemed to have that ability to make you feel good. Like he was almost bigger than life, you know, kind of guy. Everybody that came in, same thing. When, the, when you came in, you loved him. When you left, you loved him. The story of his life adorns his office walls. He started as a ball boy at the age of 13. And any time you talked with him about his job, you knew you had found that rare someone who loved every second of it. I've done my whole teenage life has been with the BC Lions, and my whole adult life has been with the BC Lions so far, and they've been good to me, and I really can't see myself doing anything else. And he never did. And any player who spent any time with the Lions might not remember all their teammates from those teams, but they would remember Cato. Uh, he, he had the heart of the team, uh, the pulse of the team, at, um, I'm sure every year. I mean, I left now 19 years ago, but uh, I can honestly say there wasn't a day that uh, I went to practice without spending at least uh, 15, 20 minutes in his office uh, just uh, talking about what type of team we had and what we can do to get better. He knew everything that was going on and uh, just, he wasn't, he wasn't um, you know, the, the bad word, he wasn't a snitch. You know, but he knew what was going on and he kind of had a, a way. And if, if there was something that needed to be said, Cato just knew how to talk to the guys. Corey Banks, yeah. biggest, biggest mooch on the team right there. Wants everything. Even if he doesn't need it, he wants it. In a game where change is constant, Cato was the exception. He became legendary long before his untimely passing. Um... How many, how many lives that he's been able to touch throughout his time with the Lions and how many people he's seen come and go. Um, you know, yet Cato is still there. And, um, you know, so it's definitely a big loss. And, and he is for sure a legend in Beast Lions history. It will never be the same. No. It will never be the same. There's just, uh, I mean, the Lions are in a transition with Wally leaving, but losing Cato is uh, unexpected and extremely sad.
And a measure of the respect. All the guys. The number of people that right that if came we out. Had, if we had found everybody who ever played with the BC Lions, they would have all had something to say about it. Yeah, me. for right. sure. Yeah. And made uh, time for it. For sure. Uh, condolences, obviously, to Cato's family. Thanks for watching. Have a great night.